I thought there was going to be a tie back to the onesies. Like it was no. like they took recycled acrylic onesies and it made the concrete ten times as strong. That's probably the next step. <laughs> Welcome once again to Free Associations from the Boston University School of Public Health, the Public Health and Medical Journal Club podcast for anyone as confused by the latest health study as I am by why anybody would ever say no when they were offered a cookie. Have you ever have you ever experienced this? Have you ever heard someone say no? I have myself said no when offered a cookie. Because we have a guest wow. host today who just before this taping was offered a cookie and said no. And I don't really? understand. I don't understand how that's possible. I don't have the willpower for one thing. A, I have no recollection of that happening, man. Really? I really? think I think I think maybe it's good that we're having this study to talk about today because I'm not sure what you what you're talking about. Okay. Okay. Um, All right. Yeah. Okay. B. Yes. I don't understand cookies. I, that that's very confusing to me, and I'm 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 worried. Cookies are a very distinct cultural phenomenon. I agree, like a very kind are of they? Like U.S. kind of. So right? I yeah. so I have found the more that I have traveled. So whenever I travel, I like to go into grocery stores just to wander around and see what's different. And over the past, say, ten years, more and more grocery stores in countries other than you know outside of the United States, you will find cookies like specifically mm. branded as cookies. So it seems like it's a, a phenomenon that's catching on worldwide. Like the cookie of cookification yeah. of the world yeah. following the, Thank you so the U.S. Much democracy. For Thank supporting you. your diabetes too to us. Yeah, we, that's we, probably, we very much appreciate yeah, it across the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, so anyway, I am Matt Fox from the Departments of Epidemiology and Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. I am joined once again by my co-host, Dr. Jessica Liebler from the Department of Environmental Health here at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome back, Jess. Thank you, Matt. Happy end of summer. Happy end of summer. And as noted, so we're going to have some recurring guests. And we have today Dr. Salma Abdallah from the Department of Global Health at the BU School of Public Health. Welcome, Salma. Thank you, Matt. Glad to have you. So as a reminder, head on over to the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. That's BU's hub for lifelong learning. And a reminder to go and rate us on, and I, I still have iTunes written down here, even though iTunes doesn't actually exist anymore. And I've been saying it for years and Nick has not corrected me. So go to whatever your podcast app. And the other thing is I used to say iTunes or Stitcher, but Stitcher is now disappearing. I never even yeah. have heard of Stitcher. Stitcher, even personally. Yeah, Stitcher. So Stitcher is going away. So we have fewer and fewer podcast options. But go to whatever your podcast app is and give us a rating. It helps us and helps others to find the show. Speaking of the show, let's get started. So today in our first segment, which is our Journal Club segment, we're going to talk about a study on the effect of hearing aids on risk of dementia. Then in the second part of the podcast, which is our deep dive, we're going to talk about loneliness as a health issue, and I would say more generally as a public health issue. And then finally, in our third segment, which is our amazing and amusing, we will talk about some things that make us laugh out loud or we just found interesting. So segment one, as I mentioned, we're going to talk about an article on the effect of hearing aids on dementia risk published in The Lancet. It was entitled Hearing Intervention Versus Health Education Control to Reduce Cognitive Decline in Older Adults with Hearing Loss in the USA, 
Achieve, that's the name of the study, a multi-center randomized controlled trial. And if you're paying by the letter, you are going to have to pay a lot more for that title than some of the other ones we've had. It's by first author Frank Lynn of the Department of Epidemiology and the Cochlear Center for Hearing and Public Health at Johns Hopkins here in the United States of America. Some headlines on this one. So Eyewitness News says hearing aids may reduce risk of dementia quote, breakthrough study says. The Telegraph says hearing aids may reduce dementia risk for at-risk patients, study finds. And CNET says hearing aids may help stave off dementia risk. So Jess, can you fill us in on what this study was all about? Right. Yeah, this was an interesting one. Thanks, Matt. And the findings were actually somewhat nuanced. And Mm -hmm. so I'll look forward to talking about that with the two of you. So just by means of background, the authors begin the article talking about and going through a fairly solid body of evidence from meta-analyses and cross-sectional studies that identify hearing loss as associated with dementia in epidemiological observational studies. However, they note that evidence from experimental studies is lacking, and this evidence obviously would provide further evidence along causal lines, looking at the effects of hearing loss on incident dementia in a way that better controls for confounding than prior studies have done. Interestingly, too, this paper kind of comes on the heels of a Lancet Commission report Mm -hmm. that identified hearing loss as the largest single potentially modifiable risk factor for dementia, which I thought was very interesting and not something I had thought of in that context before, although certainly I and I think many of us have personal experience with people in our families who experience hearing loss and dementia, and you've wondered kind of what the connection might be. So I read this with a lot of interest. The hypothesized biological mechanism here includes things like reduced cognitive load, structural effects on the brain, and reduced social engagement due to Mm -hmm. inability to engage fully in socially stimulating activities. So as the authors, as Matt noted, very in a very detailed way described in their title, Um, They conducted a multi-center parallel group, kind of an intervention and a a control group study that was unmasked but randomized, considering whether a hearing intervention using hearing aids, as I'll describe in a minute, reduced the risk of incident cognitive decline. They weren't looking notably for a dementia outcome specifically, but they had multiple markers of cognitive decline over a three-year period. The study population was based in the United States. These were older adults from the ages of 70 to 84 with, to note, pre-existing mild but untreated hearing loss, but no evidence of substantial cognitive decline. And they called their study the ACHIEVE study. I admittedly don't remember what ACHIEVE stood for, but a nice acronym, the ACHIEVE study. And the participants for the ACHIEVE study were drawn from two distinct sources, these two sources, which become really important in terms of interpreting their results. The first source was the atherosclerosis, did I say that properly? Atherosclerosis risk in communities or the ERIC study. That was one source of participants for the ACHIEVE study. And the other source of participants was a sample of healthy community volunteers who they called the de novo population, the de novo study population. The ERIC participants were part of an ongoing longitudinal study of adults who were recruited in the late 1980s, and they were middle-aged at that time, and they have been engaged in follow-up and followed since that time as a random sample of people in four mostly suburban communities across the United States, in North Carolina, 
Mississippi, Minnesota, and Maryland. That component, the ERIC participants, were drawn from participants who were active participants in that longitudinal study of chronic disease, heart disease, and aging from those four communities in the U.S. And then the de novo participants were recruited through a variety of public advertisements and newspapers, media, and the internet. The inclusion criteria for the study were ages 70 to 84 at the start of the study period, with adult onset bilateral hearing loss that was mild and untreated and no evidence of major cognitive decline. So they were free of the outcome, but did have mild hearing loss at the start of this study. And so their intervention, what they did is they compared a hearing intervention where the participants who were selected for the intervention group were fitted for hearing aids and then were followed by an audiologist every one to three weeks after randomization for four sessions. And then they had six-month check-ins throughout the remainder of the three-year study period. For the control group, they provided an established educational intervention about healthy aging. And so for these participants in this group, it was a one-on-one meeting with a health educator going through the 10 Keys to Healthy Aging program, Mm -hmm. which they focus on as an interactive educational program for older adults about chronic disease and disability prevention. So participants, the, you know, the blinding here was an interesting dynamic where participants were blinded to the hypotheses of this study focused on the connection between hearing loss and cognitive endpoints, but obviously not to their intervention specifically because that would be impossible to fully blind someone to, for example, whether or not they were wearing a hearing aid. And they were told that at the end of the three-year study period, they could access the other intervention if they wanted to. The primary outcome here was a change from baseline to year three in a global cognition standardized factored score that was derived from a neurocognitive battery of tests administered at baseline and annually until the end of the three-year study period. And so for our neuropsych and neurocognition listeners, I'm sure these tests would be familiar to you. They included delayed word recall, digit symbol substitution, incidental learning, trail making, logical memory, and word fluency. They used a global score evaluating in aggregate the scores for these different subcognitive functions. They also administered a test called the MMSE, which I don't remember what that acronym is for either. Someone knows. Someone knows. She looked it up. It was the mini mental state examination. That's what it was. Thank you. Thank you. They, they administered that one at baseline and every six months as a different series of tests. And this one was noticeable because I, my understanding is that it has relevance to Alzheimer's patients and Alzheimer's diagnoses. So they looked at this global test. They also looked at secondary outcomes in the domain specific scores for the individual tests that made up their aggregate measure. They also established a self-perceived communication score using the hearing handicap inventory for the elderly screening, the HHI. As I said, it's kind of a self-perceived score that reflects your ability to interact with others, reflection of hearing capacity called the HHI. It was assessed at baseline and also annually to evaluate the effect of hearing loss. They adjusted in their models for genetic predisposition to dementia through the APOE alleles, as well as other factors, including an interaction for time from baseline. Notably, their core endpoints were evaluated in their study population as a whole, the ACHIEVE study as a whole, as well as in each separate study component, so the ERIC study and the de novo study in sensitivity analysis. 
Their study had 977 participants, including 238 who were drawn from Eric and 739 from their de novo recruitment. They were randomly assigned 50-50 to the hearing intervention and to the educational control. In thinking about their findings, their core findings were that they identified significant differences at baseline between the two study populations, between the Eric and the de novo population. The Eric participants were more likely to be older, female, black, lower education, and have a lower income, and have a higher rate of chronic disease compared to those who were drawn in the de novo recruitment. They also had lower baseline cognition scores. In viewing the two study components together, they did not observe an association between hearing intervention and change in cognitive function during the three-year study period, either in the global cognition scores or in the cognitive sub-area subscores. They did find that the hearing intervention was associated with notable reduction in the HHI, which was the hearing handicap score, indicating that it did work to reduce hearing loss and perceived isolation in the intervention. Group and in a way that was noticeable to study participants. However, in their sensitivity analyses, they noted significant divergences in findings by their study subpopulation. In the Eric cohort, they observed a significant association between hearing intervention and reduced risk of incident dementia, a 48% reduction in three-year cognitive change in this cohort compared with the health education control, which is quite dramatic. And in the de novo group, they did not observe this difference in a statistically significant way. They also noted that in the ERIC substudy, the hearing intervention appeared to reduce risk of multiple of those subdomains aggregated to their global cognitive decline score. So they concluded that the hearing intervention appeared to reduce risk of incident cognitive decline among subpopulations with greater baseline risk of dementia, which in their study was the ERIC cohort, but did not have a strong effect among groups with reduced baseline risk of dementia. So they effectively concluded that they were seeing effect modification here by baseline cognitive function and pre-existing dementia risk, and they notice that they're going to follow up with MRI studies and further trials and observational studies to try to get at specifically what was going on here. Yeah, so a lot going on. And so I, to me, the headline, at least as they portray it, would be this intervention works, but only in groups of patients who are at higher risk for dementia to begin with. If you were to just give it to a general population of folks who were suffering some mild hearing loss, you wouldn't necessarily see a benefit. At least that's that's my interpretation of their results. So Salma, what is your take on the study? Good study, bad study? What what stood out to you? I mean, it's it seems like a good study. For some reason, I couldn't love it. I don't know why. <laughs> so I was thinking, I think we were just talking about this before we started, but two main issues I wondered about were, first, why was the intervention group not offered the golden standard, which is the education plus the hearing aid? Why, why is that something that, that was not thought of, given that this is something the educational component is evidence-based? So the, I would I would be interested to know why the authors did not uh, opt in to do that. The other thing, and I had to brush up and go back to my medical school days and read more about dementia. So if the science changed, excuse me, I, ha I haven't been practicing for a long time, but I remember 
we had to do screening for depression when it comes to uh, dementia diagnosis. I'm not sure if that was done here. I couldn't find it here, but it would have been interesting because dementia, there are some conditions that are called dementia mimics. And one thing you always do is screen for depression every time you have someone who is suspecting with having dementia because if they have depression, I don't want to go too clinical. And again, I might be misremembering. They might have something called mild cognitive impairment, which is something that could actually be reversed. And with depression, they actually can mimic some of those cognitive issues that people might have in the study. And that also then made me think about the two different groups that we're looking into and whether the ERIC group might actually have some depression symptoms that we're not looking into, just given their their characteristics. Again, this is just speculation, but those are the two main issues that I was thinking about. Then there are small things that I was nitpicking on, but I'll, I'll, I'll maybe go like a second round on that. Yeah, we're, 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 we're good at nitpicking. That's yeah. kind of a, a little part of what we do. Jess, what, what about you? I mean, so uh, there was, there was, there's clearly a lot going on here. Do you buy the overall results? Selma has some, some skepticism. In general, I, d- I mean, I, I feel like I approach this study as someone who is not in the fields of cognitive research. I'm not a medical doctor, but there was a logical biological argument mm-hmm. here that kind of reducing hearing loss would keep the brain active in a way that should stave off cognitive decline. Like there's, there was yeah. a logical kind of biology, you know, biology argument there that I, I bought at the outset. I think the, there were some real notable differences between their ERIC study population and the de novo study population. And it was unclear to me whether or not they realized that before they started <laughs> analyzing the data, you know, because the conclusions in the end felt a little bit after the fact yes. and in the way they wrote it, too. It was kind of like, you know, we we were looking for this association. We put together this study. But then wait a second. The study seems to be composed of two very different subgroups. And the one subgroup where they did find these significant associations was rather small. I think it only had 238 people. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and so to make these really broad kind of global claims – on a study just within that, you know, that that's 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 where I was struggling more. I'll just say I came into this totally skeptical. I came into this thinking, no way, this is this is not going to work. Partly that was due to some misconceptions on my part. I just didn't understand what the mechanism would be ahead of time. And they lay that out pretty, pretty clearly. And I can I can I can see that would potentially make sense. But I had heard this headline. I saw this on the local news. I saw this on various listservs that I'm on. And so I, I I had heard this headline and I thought, I'm just always skeptical of something that is that, you know, that that that's that has that has a big effect that is just something we didn't we didn't notice ahead of time. Then when you add into it, I'm always skeptical whenever there is no effect. No effect, I'm putting in quotes here because it was a small effect right. overall. But then when you stratify, there is no effect in one group and a big effect in another group. Now, of course, that is always theoretically pl- you know, possible, right? You could we could we could do a, a trial of the effect of hormonal contraception for the prevention of pregnancy, and we could do it in men and women, and we would find very different effects because the the biologic mechanism obviously is very different. So it's possible. Those things can happen. It, it feels to me it has to be more often than not, there is an effect in both populations. It's just much stronger than one than in the other. And maybe that is what's going on here because, there, you know, there, again, there was a small effect. It just wasn't a significant effect. And I don't want to get too hung up on that. 
so those were my those were my concerns coming in. I, I read the study and I didn't find a lot wrong with it. I do agree that it they say it was a pre-specified sensitivity. They say all over along, and over yeah. they say yeah. they ahead of time had planned to look at these as two separate groups, which would suggest if that were the case, then they did know ahead of time there were likely some differences that might you know, might show different results, but then why do the study in both of these populations if you think it's going to work in one and might work, but might not work in the other? Why wouldn't you first focus on the population where you think it's going to work and then you can extend it out? May have been practical considerations, but I don't know. I I, I had a little bit of, a little bit of hesitation there. I think, yeah, I think my main, the fact that I could not love it is exactly what you just said, Jess, is I have those questions on what they chose to highlight or not on and the intervention itself. But as I said, the discussion section felt like, well, we couldn't find what we we're looking for. But if you look at this very small component, of, not very small, but small component of our work, yes, you see results. And then they really focus on how hearing aids could be helpful. But that isn't really what the overall study showed us. I think that's the part where I was struggling with. I also just, the nitpicking part. So I don't know, the Nova group just seems very different to me. So I don't very, know if you've noticed like right. 17 people withdrew the, during the first year from the Nova group, which is way more than the, in the control group than the other groups, which to me makes me wonder if this is the group of people who said, we need, we want something, we're not getting it here. Mm-hmm. And then you had 76 people drop in from the DeNovo group. A term I've never heard before. Yes, exactly. Drop in. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, hello. I mean, we know what this means, right? Yeah. Me- meaning people, because this is this is not a, an experimental yeah. drug, this is something that anybody can access. Yeah. So drop in, in this case, is their term for, I was in the control arm, yeah. but I wanted yeah. hearing aids, so I got hearing aids. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know, Matt. You're the uh, seasoned epidemiologist here. What does that tell us about those? The even if not looking at the demographic characteristics, the behavioral characteristics of people in the control group seems to be a lot different from the art group. They, they, they are. I mean, yeah. if we just think of this as a as a you know randomized within these two subpopulations, yeah. I, I don't know if it matters except for the drop in drop out part. Yeah. That that definitely yeah. could matter. But I started to think about that one too, and I thought, well, if if you have participants in your control group dropping in, meaning getting access to the intervention, in theory, in the expectation, that should bias towards no effect. Maybe that's what's happening in the art. Our, which group is it that saw no effect? Was the, the uh, art. Overall. The so DeNovo de plus the De Novo right. was where they saw yeah. Uh, yeah. when they stratified. Yeah. It was yeah. So maybe that's some of, some of what's going on, but you wouldn't think like, it would just perfectly work out that you get no effect in one and some effect in the other just by chance, even if it was a biased explanation. Can happen, can definitely happen. But you'd still, you'd think that was was biasing towards the null. That would suggest that like the effects could actually be even larger than what they are, how much we don't know. And I don't know. The other thing that made me skeptical was the size of the effect in the subgroup. Like whenever I see subgroup large effect, I think overestimate. Even if it's a real effect, I think overestimate. I don't have I don't have good reason to justify that, but uh, that's where my mind goes. I had a question for the two of you. I didn't sure. understand exactly. So in the discussion section, the authors talk about how there is this known effect among participants who were in long-term longitudinal studies that they score worse and worse and worse on these cognitive tests. And I didn't fully understand that. They, they, so they, they I, made a claim that yep. they thought that there was something having to do with 
getting used to the testing that that people sure. who are new to yeah. research tend to do better on these cognitive tests than people who've been engaged in study follow-up for extended periods of time. I did not follow that explanation. I couldn't follow well. that explanation. Is this a regression of the mean kind of thing? So, so what they said is for the ARC group, because they've been in this cohort for such a long time. Since they the late think, 80s, right? Exactly. Yeah. They're, they're already exposed to all of those tests. So the testing is not really... Well, I mean, I could, I, could I, I mean, I'm again, I'm heavily influenced by the fact that they've said it, but I, I could sort of come up with a logic for that, which is like when you're, when you're new to a study, you're energetic, you put yeah. a, you know, you pay attention and you do your best. And over time you're sort of like, oh, these people again, and I'm tired and I'm just going to answer, you know, I'm not going to really do my best. And so maybe you see a decline just because over time you're, you're not, and not a real decline, but a decline in your actual effort in engaging with the study. I don't know. Right. And that, I mean, and that could potentially, if that's, if that's actually meaningful, like that could be an explanation in part for these results. So I'm just looking at my notes. It's the, the Eric study had lower baseline cognitive scores. So at the beginning of their study period and 2.7 times the rate of three-year cognitive de decline among controls compared to the de novo. Mm. So even the people who were not receiving the hearing intervention in the Eric study had increased cognitive decline over the three years compared to those that similar group within the de novo group. Yeah, yeah. And so this was kind of where my mind, <laughs> at the end of this study, I was left questioning the validity of this outcome assessment and kind of saying, what does this what does this really mean? And can we really gather the information from the samples so here? Oh, sorry. Uh, no, go ahead. And so along those lines, is it, do you think there's any possibility that the unblinded nature of this affected that? I mean, I, I don't think by and large, you know, dementia diagnosis is going to be strongly affected by knowing you're getting a hearing aid intervention. But if the actual issue is not the diagnosis so much as the amount of effort you're putting into the measurement, I, I could see if you believe that the hearing aid was going to benefit you. Again, supposedly they're unblinded to the hypothesis, but I would have to think, I, I don't want to say they could put it together because again, this was not a study about dementia that they, they were enrolled in, at least the ones in the, in the ERIC, they were, they were enrolled in a study of heart disease. So maybe they don't, you know, they were just didn't, didn't know, but I could see, you know, again, if you think there's some benefit to you, for hearing aids that you might engage more, not that the, the actual true diagnosis is different because of the expectation, but that your willingness to engage thoroughly in the measurement could differ. I don't know. So I think actually the results from the, and I was just looking it up right now, the results from the hearing handicap inventory score supports that because that's actually a self-perceived, self-described result. Mm -hmm. And they, the intervention group got better over time. The group that that received the hearing aids. So to me, that actually supports your hypothesis that if you're getting a hearing aid, self-reported uh, self outcome is actually getting better over time. So that's the component that I agree with. But why would we? Why would that effect be differential between the two groups? Because you, you're one group is getting the hearing aid, and so they have an expectation. I mean, between the de novo and the Eric group. I mean, I guess if the cognitive decline is greater in that population. They might be more, I, but I, I'm spinning. I'm just spinning stories here. I, I have no idea. I don't have a good answer to that one. Actually, my mistake. It's not differential. It is both of them actually get better. The, oh, they the, do. The they two, both the, get better. The intervention. They get okay. better in the self. So yeah. that actually so supports your hypothesis. I mean, the other yeah. explanation would be that it it actually does work, and that's yeah. why they're yeah. they're getting it. So so both right. of those could be true. But can I go back to one more thing? So you you mentioned this issue in the beginning of why didn't they give education plus. 
And I I agree with I mean so it seems to me that's the, we're getting at the sort of ethical side of things here and I I did, there is a part of me that wondered like is it is it ethical to not give hearing aids to people who have some hearing loss but I I I would imagine that's something that was considered but but you know and, and a review board obviously approved this study so I'm sure that's probably not it but you know what the other thing that I was concerned about in this when I heard the headlines was is this just a an effect of being in a study, you know, just getting something. And they did have an attention control. I mean, they, they, the control group got something as well and something that was different from the intervention arm. I suspect that's why they didn't get hearing aid plus, but I take your point that maybe that wasn't the, you know, standard of care plus, you know, it really should have been. It, it could be. I don't know. I think that's why, and maybe, maybe I'm jumping to a different point here. I think that's why I'm struggling again with the differential differential characteristics between the two groups because yep. so maybe there, this is actually a very different point. But the ARC group, part of the hypothesis of how you get dementia is lack of social interactions as well and an ability to communicate. So I'm wondering with that group, and I think they also highlighted it's it's more likely to be living alone, people living alone. When you get that intervention and you're getting the hearing aid, does that help with the reduction in, 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 in cognitive impairment? I don't know. And I go back to depression, maybe because I also work in yeah. mental health, but it seems to me maybe I have to go back to look at the supplemental tables that you're not measuring for depression, especially for this specific group. It's just something very interesting for me. Yep. I think what what I, at the end of this, what I was left with was I was interested in the MRI scans that they said they were running to see if they actually, that would have been an interesting yeah. and kind of useful addition to this Absolutely. analysis. Was there something biologically different that was actually going on? Or was this a function of the questions that were asked of, or some intervention effect of study participation or something along yeah, those lines? It seems to me this study could have been strengthened right. tremendously with a mediation analysis mm-hmm. if they had, you know, they have a mechanism proposed but the the they didn't do that. I'm going to assume that part of that was just the sample size is, is probably not large enough to sustain it. But anyway, let's 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 move on then because to get your point segues, Salma, your point segues really nicely into our second segment, which is we're talking about this issue of loneliness as a health issue or as a public health issue. And this is based on an article that was it's an editorial by the Lancet staff published in The Lancet. It's entitled Loneliness as a Health Issue. And I think, you know, it's becoming more and more obvious that loneliness, isolation is something that we need to pay, that that is a driver of health, mental health in some way. Exactly what the limits on that are and how big of a problem this is isn't clear, but I think it's probably reasonably fair to say that it has been getting worse over time. And it's something that here in the the U.S., the U.S. Surgeon General talked about this as a, a public health problem. And so it's getting more attention. And it does seem to me appropriate that this is something that we should be talking about, given what we've gone through over the past few years with the COVID pandemic, when many of us, most of us were isolated from our normal social networks, you know, even those of us staying at home with family members, our social circle got much, much smaller in our engagement. And but certainly my experience with was that even though my, my kids were at home and they still had me to talk to, that was apparently not nearly as fun as talking to their friends and engaging with them. And so, I, you know, I think there it's reasonable to say that could have an impact on people's health. So I wanted to talk about this issue and I sent around this article and Selma, you said you had you had feelings about this article. So I, I want to open this up for you to talk about what your feelings are. 
Okay, so this this should be an article that I love. Should be. Mm-hmm. Yes, given, given, given what I work on. And yep. I, I, I have to say something you said, loneliness linked to mental health, but we also see a lot of evidence that loneliness is also linked to physical health outcomes. So that can, is something to think about. Can you say a little more about that? What, what outcomes has it been linked to? So I don't want to be quoted using the wrong numbers here, but I'll look it up later. But it's a, a lot looking into cardiovascular disease. So looking into a lot of physical markers and physical health markers, there's, there are some attempts to look into okay. loneliness and, and physical health outcomes. But yes, for this article, so I, I will ask you, I'll start by asking the two of you, what do you think public health is? Because I think there's that one sentence that just made me not love this article again. I'm not trying to be a pessimist here on my first episode, but. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, so so I, it's a great question. I don't know that I know the answer to that. And I, I will say partly as a an epidemiologist who. So therefore, you know, I'm I'm engaged in a piece of public health, which we tend to talk about as the the science of public health. But that seems to me a, a an unfair. That's we we've taken that over because we don't want to hand that over to the biostatisticians and the economists and all the other scientists. But anyway, so we have a we have a piece of it, and so I'm not looking at all of public health. But I can't even come up with a a, a clear a completely clear definition of what I think epidemiology is. So my ability to to define what public health is, is, is different, but I guess I would say it's whenever we are dealing with the health of populations as opposed to the health of individuals. And that's really confusing because when you look at epidemiology, we often study things that are actually things that are really about individuals, right? They're, they're not about you know, it's not about putting fluoride in the water, which is a population level intervention, or improving the the water and sanitation. They are about you know taking a medication, which is which is actually a an individual level health intervention. Unless yeah. unless we're talking about a policy where we want to like get everybody on statins when they go above a certain cholesterol level. So I don't know, Jess. Do you have a do you have do you define have a better definition? a better definition, but I, my sense of what you're getting at with this piece is that they, they touch on some of the structural factors that contribute to population level loneliness. They use the term lonely genic environments, which I had not heard of before, but kind of talking about from the public, if this is a public health issue, what are the social structures or kind of big scale community population wide structures that could or should be altered to reduce individual level loneliness. And they, they suggest a few, but they're broad, like reducing inequality, reducing racism, additional attention to adolescent mental health. And then their conclusion at the end of the piece is, well, we're all physicians here. And so something small that we can do is to spend a few minutes talking to our patients. And they kind of conclude in this very narrowly defined medical conclusion of, you know, first of all, you know, like the idea, we're all doctors here Mm -hmm. reading this, which like obviously is not the case. And then saying establishing a brief connection with your patient could make all the difference, you know, and I, I, I agree that, you know, and I've talked about it on the podcast, you know, my parents are older and they certainly have subpar encounters with the medical system, for mm-hmm. example, just using that as an example that does affect their well-being. Yep. And so it's not to say that physicians don't have an impact on their part- on their kind of patients' mental health. I think they, they do and they can, but they didn't conclude in kind of the broad scale way that maybe I was hoping or looking for in starting the article. So I hope I, I, I 
wouldn't offend anyone here today, given that hopefully people who are physicians still consider me a physician because sadly by training I am, but also, sadly? <laughs> okay. but also I am looking at this from a public health perspective. And exactly as you said, I think as someone who works in socioeconomic determinants of health, they had a census as the beginning at the beginning of the article that said, but can loneliness be addressed through a public health approach? And then they go through all things that I would consider structurally things that we should address in public health and then end by a very narrow view of saying, but we're medical doctors here. And, and I'm very glad that there is no signature on this editorial because to me, ultimately, it felt like medical doctors saying public health is exactly the narrow view of what medical doctors think it is, which I just fundamentally disagree with. And if you're talking about all those societal issues, but you do not consider them public health, I think we might have issues of how we're defining public health together. So I think to me, that was the main tension of you're saying all the things that I'm interested in studying and working on, but then you're saying, but is that a public health approach? Again, maybe I'm misreading the article. And then you're ending with a very narrow view of what can we do as medical doctors, which public health is way more than medical doctors. Yeah. So I so I wrote in my notes is there is there a possibility public health ends up encompassing everything such that public health becomes all encompassing. And I I don't know whether that's, you know, that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it does feel to me like we're we're not clear on on what the what the boundaries of of public health are, but I think maybe I'm wrong here, but I, I think what 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 you're getting at is if we are going to solve loneliness, it is not just a it's not a medical issue yeah. per se. It's not even just a public health issue. It's a, it's a, I mean, it, it could be in that it is a health yeah. issue and it, we would approach it in a public way, but I mean, this is going to, this is a restructuring of society issue if we're going to solve loneliness and that's a much bigger problem to take on. Yeah. And, and maybe just one last thing here. And I think if I, I acknowledge if you're about everything, you're maybe about nothing, but also I was trying to think about when we talk about inequities as something that we should look into into public health. I think the role of public health here, when it comes to, let's say, inequities or structural issues, is not to say we're going to solve it through public health approaches, but when you say this is a public health issue, it provides a different lens. So we we can then, mm. even policymakers, decision makers, then when they have different considerations into policies, they will take the public health component. That's how I see the role of public health when it comes to, let's say, social and economic determinants of health. And that's why I think more descriptive work in it is helpful, is just to say, you're adding the health component into all of those decision-making processes. So, so that's super interesting. So this went in a direction that I was not quite expecting, but but since we're here, uh, let me ask the question. So was COVID also another example of this where, you know, we we had a problem that was clearly a disease-related problem. Therefore, we approached it from a medical even, you know, public health lens and left out all of the other aspects of it, the impact that it was going to have on loneliness, yeah. the impact it was going to have on kids' ability to learn, the yeah. the social connectedness, all of those things. And by focusing only on the public health approach, we ended up taking a very narrow view of what the possible set of interventions could and should be. I feel like that, in hindsight, you could say that, sure, right? Like, sure. I, th I think in hindsight, it's easier to say that. I think, you know, obviously going back to that time, there seemed nothing more important than reducing disease transmission. 
And I think we probably didn't because there was so much collective anxiety about reducing disease transmission. We didn't give enough credence to some of these corollaries of what happens. What are the consequences of reducing disease transmission by imposing social isolation? And those things, you know, come out now, right? Come out after the fact. It doesn't mean we should have done something differently at the time. But I think it's, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to say that. I, I'm, I'm less, I'm less focused on the early stages. There, mm-hmm. I think we didn't have enough right. information and we right. did what we thought was right. I, it's more the later stages where I feel like we mm-hmm. we we held on for a long time with keeping public health restrictions in place, right. some of which were probably a good thing and some of which I think probably ended up with a lot of unintended consequences. The early stages, there were a lot of unintended consequences too, but we were we were really just doing the best we possibly could and we didn't know the exact parameters and and you know there I can I can say we should get wide you know a, a wide latitude with judging it's it's the later on that I had more concerns. Yeah, I think I think my answer to that is a resounding yes. Mm-hmm. But to your first question, but I think I wouldn't even say and maybe this is where we all have different parameters of what public health is. I think to me it was that later conversations became too medicalized, not too yeah. public. Because I think to me, thinking about public health, I would have thought more if we were taking public health into consideration. If you ask me what would be best for a population health perspective, I would always say early education. So so to me, if we were taking a public health perspective, would we have considered schools and school closures early on in the process and if that is needed or not? I don't know what, what was the right answer. And we had, I, I was part of work that looked into school closures and COVID-19 and the, the pandemic across all countries. And I think we had school closures in almost all countries within the span of 15 days, regardless yeah. of transmission. And I think, as you said, because we didn't know at that point what, what would be helpful or not. But then there were a lot of countries like Uganda that kept school closed for more than two years. Yeah. And there was no conversation in Uganda after almost all countries opened the schools up. And I think... Looking back now, I would say from a public health perspective, that is probably not good for the population health of people, children 20 years from now. Yeah. Yeah. We we saw those differentials even in Massachusetts. I mean, our district kept kids home almost, it was more than a full year and others didn't and others in with, you know, in Massachusetts, we even saw that in like a small scale, just in our state, those differences and just weighing priorities differently at different times. I, there, there's definitely a part of me that also wonders, like, we we had a pretty good sense that vaccines were going to come pretty quickly. We didn't know if they would be successful, but mm-hmm. we had a we had a we had a target that we were waiting for. They actually came faster than I think we initially thought. But I wonder if we had we had early evidence that those vaccines were not going to work, what we would have done then right. and how our strategies would have changed. Because at some point we would have had to say, okay, you know, then if we don't have a viable vaccine candidate, this is something we're going to have to live with. And then we have to make different trade-offs. But once the vaccines became available, I think the calculations fundamentally changed and we didn't change as, as, as quickly. But anyway. It's really interesting to me, just before we move on from this topic, that I feel like even though we try, Matt, we end up coming back to COVID in so many of our conversations. <laughs> it, right. It has dominated our lives it really for so has. long. And I, it's like, this is not an article that's explicitly about, about COVID at no. all. And I know last time we had a, a study that also was not about COVID, but kind of the interpretation of these yeah. pieces is really is really filtered through the COVID experience. It has fundamentally changed yeah. our lives for sure. And, and going back to this article, I would say maybe two things. 
one looking back to COVID, people always think about loneliness when it comes to the elderly, but actually loneliness is becoming such a big issue among teenagers and, sure. and younger people. And, and the pandemic was part of that. The other question I had about this article, again, maybe I'm nitpicking, how comfortable were you with the <laughs> sentence that said, as damaging to physical health as 15 cigarettes per day? Yeah, I had to go back to the reference because I wanted to know, how did you get to that number? Right. They didn't provide a reference for that. My, I, my, I saw my, that. It was interesting. Right. Is this really as big a problem exactly. as smoking? I know. I, it might be. Like, it I, might I, be. I, didn't, I don't say that to say yeah. I know that it isn't. Yeah. Right. I... I Say I w- that's that's a strong claim that requires strong evidence. Yes, I thought though the value of bringing that parallel was their follow up statement where they said there's no pathology to be taxed. Yeah. there's no system wide intervention like cigarettes. Yeah. You can just tax them, yeah. and then consumption is decreased, yeah. and that's kind of a at least one structural that's true. economic yeah. option. And yeah. I thought it was interesting. We're like lonely. This there's no no obvious no obvious pathology to target. There's no product to be regulated. Yep. There's yeah. no clear. There, I, I would disagree, that though, that there's no product to be. Social media, mm-hmm. I think, actually has yeah. played a role. It's not it's not mm-hmm. the cause. It's a cause, but it has played a role, and that definitely could be regulated. But that is a conversation for another time. we got to move on. So let's uh, let's go into our last segment, our Amazing and Amusing. Jess, you want to you wanna go first? What do you got for us? Sure. I, I, this article came across my feed, and I thought it was pretty interesting in part because it linked to something I was very interested in as a very young child. So this is obviously not related to epidemiology because I don't think I knew about epidemiology until I was much older. The title of this paper, it was published in Science in just like last week. So here's a pre-younger Dryas megafauna extirpation at Rancho La Brea linked to fire-driven state shift. Fire-driven state shift. 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 Okay, I saw I this. I was, like, I, well, I was like, I don't know what any of these words any mean. Of those <laughs> in combination or separately. But basically, I don't know if you learned about the La Brea Tar Pits sure. growing up. So the La Brea Tar Pits are this area near Los Angeles in California. It's a really big area. I think it's like 13,000 acres. It's like a, it's a, it's a tar pit. Like it's, it's, it's tar and there's elements of it that remain boiling and it's captured over like 50, 60,000 years, maybe even longer different animals that have become captured in the tar pit and then kind of fossilized in tar. It, and so, it has nothing to do with it, but it's what, when I think about what quicksand is, because yeah. I don't actually, never actually seen it, I envision the La Brea tar pits, even yeah. though obviously those are two completely different things, but that's what I envision. I think that's an apt analogy. I envision it like a it's just like, quicksand parking lot. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. It's kind of like a, a tar, like a... You get, right, some get animals sucked get sucked in. in. They get and then sucked they're like woolly mammoths, right? right? That they like recovered really historic, kind of, kind of these old historic mammals. Yeah. Not, I don't think going way back as the dinosaurs, but kind of this earlier record of mammals that are kind of, you know, frozen in time in these, in these tar bits. And they played a really big part in our early education. I don't know why, but like we talked about them all the time, the liberated tar bits. And so these authors did a study on what caused, what kind of caused the death of animals in certain sections in the Brea tar pits. Wasn't it falling into and tar? Wouldn't <laughs> I think so. What they, what they concluded at the end, they did core samples into the tar pits to try to, I don't exactly know how they did this, but yeah. to try to evaluate different climactic or climatic shifts that happened in the history of the tar pits, because they were making a comment, you know, the tar pits are still bubbling and like squirrels fall in and like, you know, animals are still falling into it today and getting trapped. And they determined that it was wildfires 
that there were these huge wildfire oh, events that pushed the that animals. Pushed the animals. Maybe they didn't want to go into the tar pit into this. But they had no other. They choice. had no other choice. But is and that so, really the cause? Isn't it still the tar? Well, well death is still the cause. This is what, the proximal what? cause. She's getting very epidemiology now. There's our there's our social epidemiologist. <laughs> Yep. Um, okay. The ultimate, the final cause was in yeah. fact the tar. Okay, but what was pushing the? Well, they were claiming yeah. that at the time of these animals' demise, what was pushing them to this inhospitable region were wildfires, and oh. so they were linking it to all the wildfires that are going on now. That kind of you know that these climactic events are yeah. not without kind of larger scale consequences for extinction and species extinction. That's wild. So I thought that was kind of That's so interesting because I know at least on our summer holiday vacations we were hiking in New England and like you can see the wildfire like the the wildfires right now yeah, are for those of us in the US in the northern part of the US the wildfires are just not like a not always a daily issue but you see it it's been all summer into last spring something that's been really noticeable in our day-to-day lives even yeah, though we don't absolutely. experience the fire themselves yeah. so anyway super interesting interesting yeah. science on the La Brea tar pits yeah. going back to like second and third grade yeah really right. all right Selma what do you got I don't know if mine are um, amusing, but before we actually get into that, what I was looking at this week, one study that I found interesting that we might learn from it is um, something called the Venus flight trap. And there was a recent study that's just linked to what you were saying that looked into how it protects itself when the wildfire happens. Mm. The, Actually, the Venus fly trap, how yes. it protects it, how does it protect itself? So apparently everything else around it dies, but if there is an increase, a sudden increase in temperature, then it protects itself. It's just, it collapsed into itself. Mm. And again, this is just very unscientific, but if you raise the temperature slowly, it doesn't detect that. So it dies with, with the rest oh. of the... That's like yeah. the frog the in the frog. boiling water. Yeah. Yeah. But in, in, yeah. It's a sad story. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. So uh, for me, I don't know. I didn't know what to do here. That would be uh, on the level of what I hear you always uh, discussing here. Uh-huh. So, yeah. so I tried. So two things. So I have... First, I have a question for you. What is the difference between pajamas and onesies for <laughs> kids who are less than two years old? Oh, this is a very clear answer. Do you know the answer? Oh, we my goodness. We don't know. Matt and I did we, not know. We did not know. Oh, okay. So, oh, In we, hindsight, I recognize what the answer is. But when I was asked this question, yeah. I did not know. It's a big transition for kids when they transition out of onesies <laughs> into pajamas. Onesie is a, a, a one-piece... PJ suit that often includes feet. No. So you yeah. don't know as well then. Yes. No. That's no. what I thought. Yeah. No. No. So apparently, <laughs> yes, for younger kids. So both of them are one piece. Right. Pajamas include everything, including covering your feet. Right. Onesies don't. Onesies are just usually have shorter. They're like the, yeah. they, yeah. they, 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 the, they the almost swimming. don't have legs. Yes. Or, or, you know, like short sleeves. They're like. Yeah. Not like, necessarily like a, pajamas. Like a, like a wrestling uniform? <laughs> <laughs> close enough. Like an old-timey, an old-timey, right, like, not okay. close to that. Yeah, yeah close to that, yeah, actually. Is it like an, like an underwear? It's st- no, no, instead it's of underwear, still wear... a one-piece. Yes, the same okay, structure. It's a one-piece. It doesn't, doesn't have legs. So it's similar to it a swimming suit. Yeah, it's like a swimming suit. Like a swimming Wait, so suit. So it's like a leotard, like it doesn't have legs? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah, you, yes. Remember, you remember kids wearing those things? Like that, a... 
That's apparently what a onesie is. That's a yes. onesie. It also is used to refer to the PJs. Uh, I mean, see, at least I agree with this. So yeah. that's what we thought. Yeah. But then okay. we learned no, otherwise. No. The onesie, week. yes, the onesie are like those little snap suits on yeah. an infant, for sure. Yes, yeah. no, I, I agree with that. I yes. agree with that. But we also use them in relation to I the pajamas. Agree. That's I what totally I, agree yeah. with you. Yeah. Yes. We are in agreement. Okay. But so that wasn't it. So because of that, was there a scientific experiment that was run on? Because I didn't okay. know. I went down a okay. rabbit hole trying yeah. to understand scientifically how do you differentiate between a onesie and a pajama? Like what is the classification uh, system? Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what, what's the answer? I couldn't find an answer. Uh, yeah. But I found an Atlantic article that this uh, lady wrote because I think she was very angry because she got bamboozled by the uh, pajamas and onesies industry. Because yeah. Big, big. Big onesie is, Apparently. is definitely taking over our so lives. So it says it's like a bamboo pajama or onesie, and people buy it for very expensive. They're very expensive because they don't want to buy cotton. But then it turns out it's made of ra- Bam- rayon. Bamboo? Yes. Because oh. bamboo is softer. It is? Apparently. Than cotton? Supposedly. But oh. then it turned out it was not. it's not really bamboo. It's, it's so- rayon. rayon. Yeah. And now she's very angry. Why I, is she buying that for thirty-three dollars? So anyway, so that was that was That's my like, weekend. It's like those sushi, you know, where it's like they think you think you're eating oh, tuna, yeah. tuna, but and then it's really actually it's catfish. Yeah. <laughs> it's like something yep. like that. Yep. Yes. Yep. Yeah. But so yeah, so that I learned something new. You did so every day over the past four days. I would say though that the onesie industry has now consumed kind of the teenage market into huh. these one-piece fleece pajamas. With feet. Oh, yeah. That are I'm totally down for that. pajamas that are, like, uh, super hot. Like, like they're, like, really warm. Yeah. When I say hot, I mean, like, they're too yeah. warm for me to sleep in because it's like, it's like sleeping in a winter jacket. Yeah. I don't know. But I love yeah. them. Yeah. yeah. Do you sleep in them? No, no. but I okay. want to. I was going to say that. Okay, yeah. I want to. I want the feet pajamas My daughter pajamas has a few of them. Grown-ups. And they're, yeah. That and is they, so they call they, they, call, they call them yeah. onesies. Okay. But, Fair enough. That's interesting. Yeah. But that's not. so, so funny. That's, that's So she was bamboozled. She felt like it was not the material of onesie yes. that she actually thought she was purchasing. Yeah, and that really just brought a lot of satisfaction to me, and I thought this is information <laughs> I need to share with the world. What's the Thank difference you. between a pajama and a onesie, but also don't get bamboozled and buy a bamboo onesie. Bamboozled. Yes, yes. that's exactly yeah. what Good. she was going for. Good. But the study of the week that I really liked was that engineers in Australia found ways of making stronger concrete using roasted used coffee grounds to give a, the drink addi- additive a double shot at life and reduce waste going to landfills. Wait, so they're putting coffee into concrete? Yes, and it makes it about 30% stronger when you add coffee into concrete. Coffee is good for everything. See, I had the opposite conclusion. I I, final, I thought, finally, someone is actually <laughs> validating my hate of coffee and the fact that coffee is only beneficial to actually put it on the ground and not <laughs> drink it. And that was just, that was the study that I really loved. So you believe that drinking coffee is, is a bad thing, putting it into concrete and making it stronger signifies that that is the only true the way it should go. good use yeah. for coffee. Oh my! You combine that with your giving up of a of a cookie, and I'm I'm deeply concerned. Ah. Do you drink coffee, Jess? I do drink coffee. We've done episodes on coffee. I love. And Matt my coffee. loves coffee. I love my yeah. coffee. <laughs> I'm just telling you, if it works for concrete, I don't know. It if is you very drink interesting it. though, because yeah. I think of all the people who drink coffee. There's a lot of 
coffee that just, yeah. you know, the grounds that go into the trash. And maybe yeah. you could think of some way to. I think that's right. a great idea, but I I don't think it's an indication that we shouldn't be drinking. Because presumably they're drinking it and then. Yeah, right. So like you take what's left mm-hmm. after you've gotten the good it's stuff like a trash out, product, like recycled. And then right. it makes concrete better. Yeah. They make biochar for it. But my question to you, would you want to drink something that makes concrete 30% stronger? Yes, I would. <laughs> 100%. Okay. I thought there was going to be a tie back to the onesies. Like it was no. like they took recycled acrylic onesies and it made the concrete 10 times as strong. That's probably the next step. <laughs> so that's it on okay. my end. Yeah. All right. So for me, I really short, I just have, it was a headline in the New York Times that I just found amusing. This was from August 22nd. You may have read the story or heard about this. The title of the article is, Keep your clothes on, Sunflower I Farm warns guests. I saw that. It was really funny. Okay, yeah. so this is a story about a sunflower farm in the UK that has had to put up signs saying no public nudity because too many people are going there taking naked pictures of themselves in the sunflower fields. And what I want to know is... Who are these people? Because honestly, I've never like because you want to you want to go join them. No, them no, because I've there. never once had the instinct to see a beautiful sunflower field and thought, I want to take off my all my clothes. Not only that, not only that, and run around. And take pictures of it. That's what I really want I to do. I think with the sunflowers, I could see the appeal in reading the article that I think they they kind of like conceal, key, you know, they're big. Sunflowers are really big. Yeah. So I think you could conceal, you could take photos that could be like more tasteful because you're concealing curious behind the huge leaves or like the, you know, the big flowers. Interesting. So that's what I would assume is that they're not like total nude pictures, but they're like kind of people are trying know. to like artful. Yeah. But just the fact photos. that you have to put up a, a sign like that, apparently it, it has links back to the, I forget what the movie was where there were like women in the UK and they made a calendar, forgot the name of the movie, but, and apparently they did this. It was like, it had all of the kind of famous actors. I, Cause I read another article. That's where I saw this. But anyway, point is, I, I feel like, we live in a strange world when sunflower farms have to put up signs saying no public nudity. All right. Well, that is the end of our program. If you've got any feedback on this or any other episode, or if you want to suggest a study or a topic for us to take on, you can reach out to us at the Population Health Exchange website at www.pophealthex.org. We want to thank Nick Guler at the BU School of Public Health for sound and production and Mark Takakchi for editing. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it and we hope you'll download our next episode.